even if this other huge complex problem of climate change and societal change, even if we would manage to turn everything around next year, there's still enough CO2 in the atmosphere to make the waters warm enough so that it'll kill all the reefs in the next 30 years. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Ulrike, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. You're the co-founder and head of science and development at Reefs, a company that rebuilds coral reefs to restore marine biodiversity and protect coastlines. A very, very important project. Before we talk about it, I actually want to start with your personal background. You did your PhD in molecular genetics and experimental bioinformatics, and then you decided to become a postdoc fellow for biological oceanography. I hope I sort of pronounced that right at the ETH here in Zurich. So my first question is basically, was your career path or your career goal to eventually become a professor one day? I think probably about 10 years ago it was. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely entered this line of study um, with the aim to stay in academia. I've just been curious all along and I wanted to find out, you know, how does life work? Mm -hmm. um, but then along my academic career, I think that desire to really stay in this path and become a professor got smaller and smaller. Because, you know, the academic world is also complicated. Yeah. You have to move a lot. Also, after a while, you notice that the impact you're having, if that is your desire, and it was mine, is uh, very far in the future if there's any at all. There's, mm -hmm. It's usually with fundamental science. There's not an impact that I can feel next year or in two years. Yeah. So you said, I need to change something. I want to, you know, have a bigger impact than doing research. I want to build something and create something. Where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from? Was it really the the urge or the need to change something? Or did you also have role models that inspired you to become an entrepreneur yourself? Um, I think it was both. Mm -hmm. Certainly the the lust to do something entrepreneurial is also rooted in my curiosity, I think. Yeah. It's something new, doing something, you know, exciting. Uh, but then also the, the desire to really have a personal impact in a field that's very important to me, which is yeah, safeguarding a healthy planet mm -hmm. and, and doing something for the ocean, which is a passion of mine. That desire became more and more. So those two things kind of came together. Um, and then I had, I think it's important to mention, a very cool um, yeah, experience mm -hmm. in autumn, summer and autumn 2017. I was invited, I applied for this program called Global Solutions Program in Silicon Valley, which is run by a university, which is not really a university, called Singularity University. Mm -hmm. It's an almost three months program where you have so much input. And I was put there together with 90 other people from around the world, all about how can we tackle climate change with an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. But the people came from so many different areas lawyers, serial entrepreneurs, scientists like myself, activists, really such a mixed and diverse group. And this whole three months really changed a lot in my perception. Also because we had a lot of time to do problem deep dives and, you know, already work on, on 
concepts of solutions at least. And from then mm -hmm. on, I started devoting always a part of my time to the topic of coral reefs. Right. And that's how, kind of how it all started, I would say. So would you say that this was like really the, the groundwork, the, the starting point of your entrepreneurial career? I think so, yeah. I think that that was the spark yeah. that lit a fire that had been, you know, wanting to be lit for a while. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you actually then co-founded Reefs in 2020. You were three co-founders in total. And you already knew your two co-founders from your days at ETH. So what first drew you three together to then really work on this idea? Um, I have to partially correct you there. Um, actually, Hannah... I've known since 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 our studies in right. Freiburg uh, and uh, not from ETH. She was not at ETH. She's actually, she was still living in Freiburg when we founded the association mm -hmm. in 2020. But Maria, I met uh, in 2019 in May at ETH where she was um, working as an artist. She had this stipend to work on 3D clay printing. Mm -hmm. um, from her, like from the perspective of her artistic work. But she was, I would say the only other person in Switzerland that combined this idea of repairing coral reefs and using 3D printing in the process. So that's how we connected because I also had the same idea and there was an article at ETH News um, about myself. She read it and we met and it was just a perfect combination from the beginning. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, the, the concern of saving the environment, of doing something good for the for the planet and the environment, was that something that you three all had sort of in you where you say, hey, we're deeply concerned, we need to change something? Or where did that focus, that inner motivation come from? Yeah, that's really what, what connects us deeply. Yeah. All three of us, I would say, at exactly the same level, there's this, I have to do something for the ocean. I mean... Hannah has been working on, she's also a marine scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, she's been working on oceans since her studies, probably longer, actually. Marie has been diving since she was eight <laughs> from her family, mostly in Swiss lakes in the beginning, I think, but, you know, more and more in the ocean. And her artistic practice has always focused on, on the um, aquatic environment mm -hmm. and helping reefs also for a while. And yeah, this is what really connects us. And I think that's very powerful when this, personal motivation this intrinsic motivation comes together and you can sort of align that with your initiative with your business with your project basically i agree i think it also makes us very resilient yeah. um in that doesn't really matter what happens we have this aim that we want to achieve so you know if there's no money for a while or there's money it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. you're in it for the cost exactly. not for the big exit yeah. and then you also traveled to the Maldives. You met Fanor Montaya Maya, if I'm saying that yeah, correctly, yeah. the director of Corales de Paz, who would later become your first partner. And I just wonder, you know, how did that all start and what role did Fanor play in the whole setup of getting started and, you know, really putting things out there in practice? Mm, that's so well researched. Wow. <laughs> that's our kudos to our team. <laughs> Um, Fano indeed played a very important role. It was Hannah's idea originally to go to this coral restoration workshop in the Maldives at the end of 2019. And so I had already met Maria at ETH and we mm -hmm. had set up a few experiments um, in, in, in the lab, in a flume. So looking at water flow over surfaces. And I was like, 
ladies, let's go to this workshop and, you know, get some hands-on experience also with this other technique of coral fragmentation and coral gardening. I think it's a cool workshop. So we went and this was actually the first time that Marie and Hannah met. So I knew them both. But there it was the three of us in one room for two weeks. It was really, really cool. And um, hands-on with corals. And Fano was leading that workshop. Mm -hmm. He's also a PhD marine ecologist from Colombia. And he's been doing these trainings all around the world. How can we help coral through coral gardening with his organization, Corales de Paz? Mm -hmm. It's a Colombian NGO. And when we were later looking for a field site to implement our first pilot reef, he said, ladies, go to Colombia, come here, like, we'll, we ha- there's open arms for you, we'll help you get started, set up all the logistics, and um, there's this island, San Andres, which is actually closer to Nicaragua than to Colombia, mm-hmm. um, and they had suffered from a hurricane, and uh, a lot of reef structure actually got destroyed. So he was sure that the government, the local government of the island and of this marine reserve would really be welcoming our approach and, and you know, not finance, but help us really build this pilot. Mm-hmm. And I want to zoom out a bit, you know, to really understand the scope of the problem that you're tackling. So you as a marine biologist, please clue us in. How has climate change affected our coral reefs? What is the, the underlying problem there? Climate change, as you mentioned, is probably the major problem Mm -hmm. currently but reefs have been damaged and have seen damage through decades um and you know in the past primarily through local stressors um such as agricultural runoff um, that can favor diseases so corals also get viruses you know and they die from it they're animals Mm -hmm. um then overfishing has always been a big problem because it takes out pieces from the reef ecosystem and then without those pieces the ecosystem as a whole can't function anymore so it destabilizes the balance Um, and then climate change of course came in and with warming waters corals just if that if the duration that the water is warm is too long corals will die and the reason for that is that they have these symbionts inside their tissue these algae Mm -hmm. So they always live together with algae and these algae capture the sunlight and they produce sugar and feed the coral with that sugar. Mm -hmm. The coral itself can also feed with tentacles capturing plankton, but it relies heavily on this sugar. And when the water gets too hot, the corals have to expel these algal symbionts, these algae, uh, because they become toxic. So it kind of leads to its own starvation, but it has to do it. Otherwise, it'll die from toxins. It's a really bad situation. Lose-lose, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So if the water uh, gets less warm again within, say, a few weeks, one, two weeks, those uh, algae can come back in and the coral can recover. Mm -hmm. But what we've seen in the last years, uh, there was a major bleaching event in 2017, is that all around the world... The waters became so hot for so long Mm -hmm. that a lot of coral bleached and then died as a result of that. So we've lost probably, I mean, the estimates vary, but probably around 50% of all reefs already. Wow. Yeah. And why is it that we should value these coral reefs? reefs? Why are they so important for nature and the whole ecosystem? They're important for the whole world, I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. 
mainly because they harbor more than a more than a more than a quarter probably about a third of all species that exist in the ocean so imagine you have this you know this this pie of all the species and you take mm-hmm. out a whole third the the remaining two third they might become destabilized the ecosystems that these other species depend on may become destabilized so as a marine biologist i'm actually worried that the ocean as a whole could kind of collapse in a way or lose a lot of its functions if we take out such a big piece mm-hmm. of life um that's that's my major concern mm-hmm. uh, but then of course there are more tangible concerns for example the um the pharma industry uh, or other industries that rely on natural products beauty you know luxury yeah. whatever um animal industries so any 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 kind of seafood all those industries rely heavily on reefs um the pharmaceutical industry is particularly interesting i think because in a reef because everything lives so closely together so you have all these animals that can't move Mm-hmm. They're fixed to the rock, and they live in such dense, uh, you know, relationships that they have to fight each other. It's not a very peaceful uh, <laughs> place, such a reef. So they all fight each other. Corals fight sponges, you know, sponges fight viruses, and so on. And as a result of that, you just get a lot of compounds produced that are good against bacteria, against mm-hmm. viruses, against pain, against cancer. So it's a really great source of everything we may need in the future. It's much, much more significant than we might think from the outside or might even understand without having the in-depth knowledge that you bring to the table. Yeah, and I think it's also uh, an aim of what we do to talk about this more and also inform people about how important Mm -hmm. this is. Um, Another aspect that's also very tangible is that Reefs occur mostly along coastlines, mm-hmm. and they protect these coastlines from, you know, uh, flooding, wind surge. So when the waters kind of come up due to a storm, for example, the last hurricane in Florida, mm-hmm. I think had damages of about two hundred billion that probably need not have occurred if the reefs would have still been healthy because they absorb all that energy would otherwise, or that does otherwise hit the coastline and destroys buildings, other ecosystems, infrastructure. And now you at reefs, you use a terracotta-based structure as a basis for future reef growth. Can you explain a bit more how that exactly works and what you exactly do with that structure? We've created this modular system that consists of um, a lot of individual modules that are Mm -hmm. made from 3D printed clay terracotta clay as you said and these modules are held relatively small so that they can still be carried by a person and built in the water by a person for example a diver or a snorkeler Mm -hmm. that has to do with uh, the scaling model that i'll maybe explain later (laughs) um and then at the same time terracotta is a very good material for coral settlement and the settlement of other organisms so what what happens when we initially place this material, this reef system in the water, is that first it will get in soaked in bacteria at some mm-hmm. point because it gets soaked in water. Um, and that's due to the porosity of the material. It has a lot of space in the material for water to come in. 
and then with this water come bacteria and something starts growing on the bricks and it this is really important to see uh, what starts growing initially and how that helps coral settle later so the whole material and the design of the bricks is made uh, for coral larvae to settle uh, as best as possible to our knowledge and then also start growing on these bricks and what is the specific material? You said it's 3D printed, but what is the specific material that you use for that? It's a terracotta clay, um, and this will vary with the location. Mm -hmm. So here in Switzerland, we use a clay, a Swiss clay. Yeah. There's different clays. Uh, I can't speak to the exact composition of it, but in uh, another location, for example, in Mexico, where we now have a production partner, we will use a Mexican clay, of course. Yeah. Um, we've done most of the prototyping here in Switzerland and there's always considerations that we need to take with local clays. For example, do, let, do they leach any substances, right? right? Yeah. So that always needs to be tested. But other than that, different combinations can be feasible. And then it's important uh, for now that it's 3D printed because this, uh, due to the, it's an extrusion printer that prints these, these uh, bricks, as mm -hmm. we call them. And through this process, you get a lot of layers that provide an additional microstructure, or let's say on the millimeter level. Mm -hmm. And this also helps the settlement of organisms. That sounds amazing, like <laughs> mind-blowingly amazing. <laughs> and talking about testing, you said, you know, you have to test, you have to iterate. In 2021, you did the first test in a Swiss lake. I think the conditions were quite, you know, so challenging. Four meters visibility, eight degrees water temperature. <laughs> how how did that test go and what did you actually test there? What was the, the aim or the goal of that test? I still remember that. I think right after that test, I had my first tiny little, I don't know, breakdown mm -hmm. <laughs> because the preparations were so intense. Just because it was the first time that we put this entire system in the water and especially the foundation of the system. Because the bricks are quite small, especially that first prototype was only 30 centimeters long um, and reasonably light, only three kilos per brick, we needed to anchor them some, somehow. And we had this idea of how to anchor them with a kind of a concrete puzzle that was very complicated to make, <laughs> very complicated. Yeah. And um, we, this was just the, you know, it was the time of truth. Will mm -hmm. it work? to do it that way, because then we wanted to do it the same way in Colombia as well. And so we prepared everything with a bunch of volunteers uh, on the roof of Zetareka. We poured this concrete puzzle. <laughs> I, I still have to laugh thinking about the process. Um, it's way too complicated. But you got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, that's very normal. Yeah, we're not doing that anymore, but it was fun also in a way. Um, and then we transported all these puzzle pieces of the foundation, about a hundred kilos each. Mm -hmm. to the lake uh, close to Tiefenbrunnen and sank them there uh, with a team of divers. Some volunteer divers came along as well. It was, was really kind of great fun. Also, because it was so cold, it was a special experience. Mm -hmm. um, and we were in the water for two hours or so at a time, then did a break and we're in the water again. And on the first day, the concrete puzzle, this foundation puzzle just didn't fit there was something about maybe the floor wasn't totally even, uh, you know, that's not a good prerequisite to have that the floor has to be entirely even. Mm -hmm. So the last piece of the puzzle kind of didn't fit in. So we gave up for the day, went back the next day, 
then Marie and Mauro, who's our amazing field assistant, they just went down diving there and they took a crowbar and they somehow did magic and then it worked. They also made the it sun work. was shining, so maybe it was just a better day. <laughs> um, it worked and we were super happy. We piled up all the bricks, like we built this tiny reef there and then just took everything back out yep. the same day. Um, but that was our just our proof that the system itself, like just the idea of how we wanted to build it would work. So to speak, your MVP, right? Maybe. MVP for nature, let's say. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then only a few months later, you actually then did the implementation in Colombia, right? Yes. How did that go? Because you learned, you, you saw, oh, it works. But I imagine despite, you know, having it done once here in Switzerland, it was probably a whole other challenge to pull off. Different challenges. Yeah. <laughs> the main challenge was actually the transportation of the bricks to Colombia. Because we obviously did all the prototyping here in our atelier and mm -hmm. we made the bricks, 230 bricks for this first reef here. So we had to ship them and we thought, oh, you know, we have to pack them well so they don't break. So we packed them in recycled clothes. We made a call, hey, do you have any clothes that you don't need? You know, we didn't want to pack in plastic. So we did that and shipped them <laughs> and didn't know that Colombia was a textile producing uh, country and had extremely high taxes on clothes that you oh. want to import. <laughs> like, we thought we were doing something good. Yeah. But in the end, uh, we could somehow figure it out uh, with the tax authorities. Uh, the whole thing was declared a donation to Colombia. And it all worked out fine, but we had more than a month's delay. Yeah. And we were actually in Colombia with a workshop team. So we had 11 people, international participants there as well, that paid to do a reef building workshop with us and learn something about coral ecology. And we did all, we had to change the whole schedule of the workshop because the bricks didn't arrive until, I don't know, the third to last day or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, like, we finally got them. They were stuck in Cartagena on the mainland Colombia and they just didn't make their way to, their way to the island. In the end, it worked. I don't know how magically. And then building the reef was actually done in two days and the foundation, making the foundation, it was good that we tested it in May. Worked really well this time. Amazing. Yeah. And now after the implementation, what did you then do to monitor to see, you know, okay, we could install it there, but of course you also want to sort of measure the effect and the development. What happened since you implemented it in Colombia? That's, that's the most important part, I would say, you know, looking at the impact. Um, right. The first thing that we noticed is that fish took over the structure really fast. They mm -hmm. made a home in it. Uh, we got lots of juvenile fish. So it was a breeding ground, but also a ground just for young fish to find shelter. Um, and after three months, we had our local partners do a fish count in, um, in December 2021, exactly. And they counted, uh, or we, we counted a diversity of fishes that was almost as high as on the natural reef wow. already. And it stayed that high ever since that's a huge accomplishment. We also were really positively surprised. That said, though, in, in if you're an ecologist, uh, fish ecologist, you'll know that fish love structure. So mm -hmm. if the structure is well made, the fish will come quickly. And for us, it just showed us that our structure is complex enough. Yeah. Everything was designed towards this complexity, kind of an ecological principle. If I make some, if I make a new habitat space that's complex, 
and has diverse niches, you know, different floor conditions, different light and shade, mm. different spaces, sizes of caves and so on. I'll also get a diverse uh, inhabitant suite. So yeah. many diverse fishes. Uh, this worked really well. But then I would say even more importantly is, do we get corals settling? Of course. Yeah. And corals, uh, they usually only spawn once a year. So they make sexual offspring usually once a year. And in the Caribbean, that there's a period of which different species in which different species do that. And that's kind of between yeah, May and October. Mm-hmm. So we, we implemented the reef in September. So we didn't know if we would get any larvae from the current spawning period or maybe o- only next year. But when um, we weren't actually there, but again, our local partner, Angela from Corales de Paz, she works with Fano, uh, she checked in July 2022, the last year, and she found the first baby coral. Amazing. We were like, woohoo, first yeah. baby coral. And it seemed to have been about three months old. Mm-hmm. So it maybe came from the early spawning or it was just still in the water or an exception, who knows. Yeah. But uh, we went back for a full monitoring with our team uh, one year after we've put the reef in the water. Mm-hmm. So last uh, beginning of October, I went with Hannah. And uh, we checked systematically on, on young corals, and we found one on every second break. Well, that's, that's massive. That is really cool. So now the question is, how many of those survive? Mm-hmm. The monitoring is always ongoing. It's, yeah. it's a long-term process, so we have to check for at least three years, better five. Yeah. But we expect that when it's been in the water for three years, the corals should have football size. Mm-hmm. That's because we have an exper- we've had an experiment in the Maldives, which we installed during this workshop, where we now have corals that are football sized. So um, that really gives us, uh, yeah, it's a promise of what is to come in Colombia. All indicators look very, very promising. And no, you don't know until you have the data basically for three to five years. So what is your plan there? Do you say, hey, this seems promising. We already start with more executions because time is crucial or do you say no this is actually a huge risk because we first need to get the data in otherwise all the work is for nothing if we have to replace it or if it doesn't work how do you make that call we decided for ourselves that we'll um we'll wait for a year see how the indicators are if they're all good we'll go on with the next iteration so with the learnings that we already have say on surface structure We've tried a few different surface structures. We've seen what is not important and what may be important. Mm-hmm. Um, we're definitely building a reef this year, probably three or four, actually, in different locations around the world because of exactly that time pressure. No. We will lose corals until mid-century. That's less than 30 years. So if we wait three years for every experiment, yeah, of course, doesn't work. Yeah. So we are really going with... I guess what we know from maybe software startup <laughs> world, we put something out there that's maybe not perfect and we'll take in, we'll just take in all the feedback from nature, but also from people <laughs> um, as we go and along the line. I've even heard from somebody, why don't you just put huge structures in? You know, if they don't work, you can take them back out. Mm-hmm. But as a scientist, I didn't want to quite go down that yeah. road. So we'll see in the future. But now for us, it's important to implement uh, similar structures in different parts of the world, in different oceans, Mm -hmm. because different oceans may require subtle changes 
to the structure uh, due to complex network of relationships. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll just be important to see how this system works in different parts of the ocean. Yeah. And one question, of course, that obviously comes to mind, right? Um, the cause, what you're doing is incredibly important, but at the same time, you, there are also costs involved, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you finance everything or how does reefs make money in the end if you know that's eventually your goal to also have money in the company to do bigger and better things? Exactly. Initially, this is also the reason why we founded um, a Swiss association initially, is that we financed the first reef through crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. Worked really well. Um, people care. Of course. Yeah. Which is nice. And um, so we have a great community now. And that completely financed the first reef. Um, after that, we mainly financed ourselves. So in the last one and a half years, through private donations, some company donations, um, some foundations that are supporting our work. Great. Um, yes. I think but that's it. <laughs> do, do you see that there's might be like a business case behind it that someone would like really pay for your services? A country, for example, to say, hey, this is so important to us. We want to hire you to build this up for us and pay you to really have a significant business case behind reefs. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we've been working towards, mm -hmm. uh, especially last year. Last year, we really focused on business development. I mean, we are still an association, but we've started making business, uh, you know, in the framework of the aims of our association, of course. Mm -hmm. So what I said is that's the past. That's uh, private, public money. I mean, private more by meaning private donations right. <laughs> and then public money. But in the future, we really want to develop or work on a on a sustainable business model mm -hmm. because scaling I calculated this back from what we have to achieve to save coral reefs and uh, i found out that we have to massively scale if we want to achieve uh, anything meaningful so that's what we're going to do yeah. um, because we want to achieve something meaningful um so this year we're actually turning reefs association into an ag in switzerland mm -hmm. and uh, we're also raising capital but you asked about the business model. Ah, <laughs> so in terms of business model, we, we are targeting right now, we're targeting companies, mostly larger corporates, but mm -hmm. also smaller companies show interest um, that can sponsor a reef or part of a reef for their sustainability portfolios. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like planting a tree, but more exciting and better and with less throwbacks because there's a scandal. <laughs> um, now we offer i mean i think uh what we can offer at the moment to corporates is a really exciting solution to do something for the ocean mm -hmm. for biodiversity and also to take uh, their employees on a journey take their own customers on a journey because results happen fast as we heard before three yeah. months it's full of fish first coral yeah. come within a year and for all of this we we can have really high quality image and video material and it's just really easy to share the impact visually right so people understand it very easily i think that's why it works and For, yeah just out of curiosity what what is your sort of pricing behind that you know how much is one reef from a company perspective mm -hmm. or do you do more of a subscription model where you say hey you know there's also maintenance etc included so you have to sort of subscribe to be 
a real donor and also on you know maintain the reef to a certain degree what is your model there have you already thought that that's yeah good? yeah so currently we allow both to finance a reef together with others mm -hmm. that starts from one cubic meter of reef yeah so we we do this by volume uh, and a cubic meter is three thousand francs mm -hmm. but if you want your exclusive reef that you can name you know say you're a company <laughs> it's your yeah. company reef yeah Uh, your employees can go visit it when they're on holiday. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want your exclusive, we start from 15 cubic meters just because we can't go and implement something that's smaller. It just doesn't make sense in terms yeah. of uh, expenses and in terms of ecology also. Yeah. So if you, if, if you as a company sponsor a reef together with others, we'll also wait until we have a pledge of 20 cubic meters and yeah. then we go build that. So in that case, you'll have to wait a little longer till you can see the impact. But with an exclusive one, we can start basically start with production right away yeah. and then build it about two months later. Um, so I say 3000 per cubic meter. Exactly. But then we offer add ons uh, such that that are subscription based mm -hmm. yearly for uh, data and, and image subscription. So nice. I call it data and storytelling. Because, of course, you'll probably want to know what's happening on your reef. Of course. And you probably want to know for many years, not just one, because okay. the exciting stuff, you know, it gets more and more exciting. Obviously, right. life becomes amazing and more amazing every year. Um, but then we also offer a yearly extension. Mm -hmm. For example, we've heard from some customers that it's not, it would be nice if they could have a yearly employee challenge or offer their employees to donate throughout the year. Cool. And that goes towards an extension of the reef. And then you can say, look, this was our initial reef, but it grows year after year by two or three cubic meters or five. Amazing. Who are the companies that you typically work with in such a setup? So now it's really mostly very large multinationals. Yeah. Um, because they probably have the budgets. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the interest, of course. Uh, we do care that... A company has a good sustainability plan mm -hmm. before we engage or before yeah we we supply them with a reef or they can have a responsi sponsorship um just because i mean we are really a value-based startup so yeah. at least in the next years we want value-based um customers as well yeah. of course i mean our plan is to develop reef credits That, are, that will be tokenized and can be booked as financial assets eventually, say, think 2026, roughly, mm -hmm. when also regulations for biodiversity, will, biodiversity might be in place. So these reef or biodiversity credits will then, of course, be available to everybody. That's all I'm saying. Amazing. Yeah. And you mentioned the scalability, right? That is a big challenge, I imagine, because at the moment, you know, you have to print the actual reefs, you have to bring them there, you have to set them up and install them, you have to maintain them. Is the scalability something that you solve purely by more woman and men power? Or what is your your aspect there, your angle to the scalability mm. topic? Um, We realize that we do have to get away from 3D printing eventually. Mm -hmm. For the next few years, it still works with local 3D printing partners um, just for the capacity that we need. But then later, and probably roughly in line with the issuance of actual reef credits that will then also um, have to be cheaper, mm -hmm. we will scale up by casting our modules. Okay. Casting clay is not trivial. 
Yeah. There's expertise also here at ETH though with Oxara. Nice. Um, that uh, I'm hopefully talking to soon. Um, so casting clay, exactly. Or there may be other ways of doing it as well, maybe folding the half dry clay. But mm -hmm. the, my point is that it has to be done in an industrial way yeah. without losing the ecological um, capabilities of the brick that we have now. So that will just require some R&D. And that's also the main, yeah, the main work of what we'll be doing this year and next year with some of the money that we'll raise. And then in terms of implementation, that's also important. We decided to stay with men and women power, mm -hmm. but purely local. So we'll have local licensee groups, uh, call it stakeholder groups that want to repair the reef in their country. And um, there's many of those we, we hear, uh, we get a lot of interest already, but they often don't have financial um, capabilities mm -hmm. that are enough to pay for this. Yeah. So. We'll onboard those as licensees, but they only pay a symbolic fee. Mm -hmm. And they'll get all the components at cost price. And, it, and the reef credits that will be sold for the impact that these reefs create will mostly, minus a commission, mm -hmm. go to these local groups. They will then build the reef and sort out you know, their labor locally. So they'll right. be most efficient probably without us. Yeah, probably cheaper than Swiss labor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also they will know the local conditions. You, you have a lot of the value creation locally from 2026. Mm -hmm. Our vision is really that most of the value creation will be locally. Um, and so this, this creates an additional social impact by creating a lot of jobs. And there's certainly enough people in the world to scale this up that live on vulnerable coastlines. You know, that's not my issue. Definitely. Yeah. One thing I ask myself, I think it's amazing what you do. And one thing I'm sure you have a, a, an amazing, a perfect answer to it is you you could also tackle the, the reef destruction itself, right? But you actually focus on rebuilding it and regeneration. Why is that the right focus and not focusing on the reef destruction at the beginning? Because that seems to be the root of the cause why you actually exist in the first place. Uh, I think maybe... You have to ask the question, why is that the right choice or the right way for me? Sure. Um, because, of course, I would love to tackle the root problems. The root problem is societal, though, right? And mm -hmm. it's political and it's economical. It's it's massive. I've thought about this for many years again and again. It's yeah. like, how how can I do I have to become an activist? But then I thought... I don't know, am I, am I an activist person? Yes, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then what's my biggest, I just thought, what is my biggest leverage personally? It's like, okay, I understand the ocean. So I can try and work from an ecological point of view. And then I looked at reefs, it's like, they're already pretty destroyed and it's going really, really fast. And even if uh, this other huge complex problem of climate change and, and societal change even if we would manage to turn everything around next year, there's still enough CO2 in the atmosphere to make the waters warm enough so that they'll kill all the reefs in the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, even if we stop the root cause, we won't be fast enough so that th there just won't be enough reef there that can replenish globally reefs yeah. once the conditions are better. So there's an there's this emergency uh, there's this emergency 
thing mm-hmm. where we have to we have to we have to give them this this healing patch kind of rebuilding what we can so that animal populations and coral populations even have a chance to reproduce and through reproduction they will also adapt so we're actually giving them a chance to adapt as fast as they can a lot of these animals especially corals they reproduce quite slowly mm-hmm. and not very efficiently <laughs> only like one in a million larvae survives or so wow so if we can make more of these larvae survive by giving them a good settling ground, um, we enhance their chance of adapting to warm waters, adapting to diseases. Right. Because the larvae that we have in the water now are mostly from corals that have already survived, right? The last yeah. bleaching event, 2017 bleaching or 2019. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm glad. <laughs> Another interesting question is, you know, Switzerland without any access to the sea is your home for having an ocean tech startup, if I can call you that way. Why is that the right place? Because Switzerland seems to be probably one of the least places that people might think of, of doing what you do with reefs. Because of the tech in ocean tech, I think that's that's the right answer. Um, Coming out of ETH, that's obvious. But I've just found the the tech ecosystem and the support ecosystem in Zurich, but also in Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, as a whole, so great. You find all the talent that you need to tackle any complex challenge. Um, there's a lot of passionate people. People do things for passion, not for money, because usually there's enough money around. So mm-hmm. all these things come together. And especially with ETH, there's just such a pool also of collaborations and partnerships. Yeah. That sounds like the perfect spot to have an ocean tech startup. I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are dreaming of a permanent field site, though. Sure. For example, in yeah. Curaçao, um, yeah. somewhere where we can have a constant ocean lab as well. That makes a lot of sense. In yeah. the future, yeah. Right. And talking about the future, you know, you already shared a bit about the AG uh, incorporation, the potential tokenization. There's a lot happening. What are your immediate future plans, you know, with new installations or new customers to work with? What are your immediate future plans for the next few months? In the next few months, we are building another reef in Colombia for a customer that I can't name yet. We'll see. We'll hopefully find (laughs) out soon. I think so. Um, Then we're planning a reef in the Philippines uh, together with a mangrove organization. There we want to, I mean, it's paid... um, probably by by one of our current partners. Mm -hmm. But the aim is a scientific one, namely to see if mangrove and reef restoration, if done together, produce a win-win for both the mangroves and the reefs in terms of biodiversity, but also Mm -hmm. in terms of CO2 sequestration in the mangroves. That's Philippines, which we're very excited about, because that's also a project that um, we're doing together with an, an, an ocean partner of ours, Team Malizia, around the German sailor, Boris Herrmann. Nice. So that's always fun uh, with them. And then we're onboarding a local team in Ecuador mm-hmm. for another reef. Currently, the strategy is to have enough building permits and NGOs in place so that when we have a new customer, we can directly start because that has been a big delay in the past. I can imagine. Yeah. Sometimes the bureaucracy goes so slow. <laughs> so until you have this permit to build a reef can be can take way over half a year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're definitely uh, talking to more companies uh, that may become customers this year. I expect maybe five 
not all of these reef may, reefs may be implemented this year. Some will be implemented next year. Yeah. But yeah, it's an exciting time uh, mm. becoming a proper company. Very exciting future <laughs> ahead of you. Absolutely. And what is next for you personally, you know, outside of the ocean, the reef world? Is there an outside? <laughs> Maybe not with no, uh, all yeah. the points you mentioned. <laughs> no, in general, there is. We, we try to be very diligent on, on our free time as well. Yeah. Uh, keep a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, there's a dreams. A dream of mine is that I also want to write a book, but that's a little bit of a bigger issue next to starting a company. <laughs> of course. So we'll see how that works out. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not starting on this immediately. Um, but other than that, like no, no, no big plans. <laughs> Perfect. So to wrap up today's conversation, Ulrike, we also have prepared some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you a short question or different options to choose from, and you have to answer in one sentence. Okay. You um, ready? Yes. Diving, serving, or snorkeling? Diving. Clear choice for you. Clear. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Probably around eight. Nice. What's your favorite beach? Oh, oh, hmm. I guess many to choose from, right? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I really don't know. Would I even know what it's called? Like, where is it geographically? Probably on Sardinia. Nice. Coffee or tea? Coffee. What's the most beautiful coral you've ever seen face to face? <gasps> There's this huge elkhorn coral. That's a coral that um makes kind of flat branches mm -hmm. and I saw one diving in close to Cartagena uh, on the Colombian mainland and it was just a massive elkhorn you have to know elkhorn in the Caribbean is highly threatened here there was this massive elkhorn on a tiny little mount that was spanning maybe five or six no more like five by five meters almost wow yeah really wow. really cool sounds really impressive <laughs> and the last question for you today what is one thing that you cannot do without that you just don't want to miss in your life? Good relationships with people. I love that. Nothing materialistic, but good relationships yeah. with people. I love that. I think that's the perfect sentence to end the conversation. <laughs> Ulrike, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really, truly amazing to see what you're building with your team. Lots of success and all the best for the future. Thank you, Sylvan. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>